Hello, I am Anika Orock, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Len. episode 97 of baseball and bbq my name is jeff go and i'm here with my amazing co-host len aberman amazing thank you shocked i was not expecting you to do the intro but i am glad you did i could tell how excited you are because that music just gets the blood pumping doesn't it jeff yankee music yeah but (laughs) you know what jeff episode 97 it can't be any more appropriate to play that music because we have on with us probably one of the foremost authorities on baseball, mostly Yankee baseball, of course, Marty Appel. Yes, he is just an amazing baseball person. He yeah. play the game, but he's involved in all aspects of baseball and even involved with the Baseball Hall of Fame. If yeah, he is definitely you'll you'll hear about that. I was gonna say if you despise Jeff and despise me, then I don't know why you're on this podcast. But even if you did, this would be the one episode that you would want to listen to, Marty Appel, because from his humble beginnings as the helper to Mickey Mantle answering fan mail for Mickey Mantle, right? To books that he's written on the Yankees, to the to the relationships that he's had with the various players on the team, whether it's Thurman Munson, Willie Randolph, I mean just on and on and on, of course. Yogi Berra. I, I mean he just he's a he's a he worked with George Steinbrenner. He went through all then, that all that craziness. He talks about so many things at this interview. He talks about his days doing the PIX broadcast and how he brought in Tom Seaver. And Jeff, you know what? There, this one is definitely one hey, that you're gonna. He, he, to, he talks about when the Yankees played at Chase Stadium, right? How, how they blew out the field wall. <laughs> yes, <laughs> love that story. And then, not to be outdone, but you know, but definitely, we had to put on somebody who was fantastic in her own right 
and would not disappear into the background, as they say. Brie Blackford, who was just charming. She has a sauce company called Elder's Kitchen. And she was just, we were her first podcast that she uh, appeared on. And we were honored. And she is going to talk all about her sauces and how she got started in the business. And it's, uh, she was a lot of fun. Yeah. So we definitely have a, a really uh, fun interview, a fun episode. So please sit back and uh, enjoy our interview with Marty Appel. Baseball and BBQ is honored to have with us one of the premier baseball historians in the game. Among his career highlights, and there have been many of them, He's an author of 24, count them, 24 books on baseball and a two-time Casey Award winner for Best Baseball Book of the Year. A member of the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame of his alma mater, SUNY Oneonta, an Emmy winner. He can be seen on the MLB and the Yes Networks, consulting producer on HBO Movie 61 and the ESPN series The Bronx is Burning, and the New York Times has called him the premier authority on Yankee history. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Marty Appel. Welcome, Marty. Thank you, guys. Really good to be with you. That was some bio. <laughs> <laughs> That's just that a little. A, I mean, he has a lot more. <laughs> it excludes that I was an extra in a Woody Allen movie, but that's for another day. No, it's not for another day. You just brought it up. It's for today. Go ahead. <laughs> um, there was a casting advertisement in Variety around 1983-84, I think. They were just looking for extras for what was then called the Woody Allen Project. So it was in Manhattan. It seemed like a fun thing to do. So I just applied. Um, And I got hired. I made $20 a day, four days. And the picture wound up being the Purple Rose of Cairo. So it was a great experience. Hey, wonderful. And and an active. There you go. Marty, you've probably been asked this a thousand times, but here goes a thousand and one. How did you start working in baseball? I was an inspiration to everybody who didn't have a relative working in in baseball. I just got it in my head one day that it would be fun to work for the Yankees, the team I grew up rooting for. And I wrote a letter to Bob Fischel, their PR director, who I knew who he was from Yankee yearbooks. So I was still in college. I wrote a letter saying I won one of your scorecard contests last year, and I'd love a chance to just work for the Yankees this summer. I didn't even say as what. So the interesting twist to it was I got an interview and I got hired, and my job was answering Mickey Mantle's fan mail. So I got a lot of FaceTime with Mickey. We actually became friends out of it. But the reason it seemed to just happen so easily was in the late 60s, baseball was not very cool with younger people. There were other distractions in the NFL and NBA were coming on. Baseball just wasn't what people in college were looking to do. So he didn't get a lot of letters looking for a a summer job. So I was lucky. Uh, My letter was on his desk when Pete Sheehy, the clubhouse man, rolled in several cartons of unanswered Mickey fan mail. And Bob said, must be somebody out there to answer this. (laughs) And that was the start of it. That's very good. It's amazing to me because can you imagine now 
the people want to work in baseball. I mean, that's that's like the dream job to work for a team. Well, I'd never get hired today because my credentials back then were that I really knew my stuff. I knew baseball history, mm-hmm. and I could give you the starting lineup of the 1914 Yankees. Uh, I really did know a lot. But today, that's not who they're looking to hire. They're hired, looking to hire business majors or marketing majors or really people skilled in the business side of things or people who are really skilled in analytics, which is also not my forte. So I slipped in there before hiring got tough. Well, you are, uh, your forte is definitely writing books. You wrote a lot of them. I've read a lot of them. In fact, I read Hardball years ago and and reading your bio, I didn't know you were involved with that, but I enjoyed reading it. And I can tell you, I absolutely loved the book on Casey Stengel, uh, Baseball's Greatest Character. His career spanned, you know, from, from Babe Ruth to New York Mets favorite Ed Craypool. So well, it, it goes back even farther, Chris. When he was a kid growing up in Kansas City, a neighbor on his block was the 19th century Hall of Fame pitcher, Kid Nichols. Oh. So he really spanned Kid Nichols to Ron Swoboda and Tug McGraw. Amazing. Lifetime. <laughs> Marty, when you were first working for the Yankees, they were owned by CBS, right? Yeah. So those were the lean years. You know, people nowadays, and and Jeff's son, I love Jeff's son. Jeff's son is of the generation that knew playoffs every year and World Series (laughs) and didn't know any of the heartbreak of, of, of being a Yankee fan. But you did. You the CBS years were the lean years, and then of course Steinbrenner buys the team, and things turn around. But I think how I'm the was last it then? guy standing who worked for the team really during the CBS years, during Mickey Mantle's time as a player, and in the original Yankee Stadium. There are players who are still around because they were mm-hmm. so young then, as was mm-hmm. I. But I'm the last front office person still left from those days, so I'm there to bear witness that. Those were lean years, but God, it was so much fun to be among them. Those baseball players are just great company, great to be around. Yeah. What, what was it like then? I traveled with them. I formed friendships with them because we were of the same age, making about the same money. <laughs> so <laughs> those were good years. Wow. Now, those were the years where the Yankee Stadium, they had the monuments inside, inside the stadium. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, I went there a couple of times, and that, was, that amazed me. <laughs> well, before you were a kid, though, at the end of the game, they let all the fans exit through those center field right. exits uh, out onto Jerome Avenue, River Avenue. So uh, people would walk across the outfield at the end of the game in an orderly fashion, as Bob Shepard would command, and it would you'd even walk by the monuments. Wow. I, I knew they did that at the Polo Grounds. I did not know that they did that at Yankee Stadium. Really, until the late 50s, early 60s. Um, it didn't happen by the time Roger Maris got there, but there came a time when they felt like not good security. Mickey, especially, as his popularity rose, it would be difficult for him to run from center field into the dugout with... 8,000 fans <laughs> traveling right. across the outfield. <laughs> Marty, do you think when you were with the Yankees that Mickey Mantle was the most popular Yankee that you ever had to, that you ever oh, dealt yeah. with? It was somebody on Facebook today 
this isn't exactly a mantle answer, but somebody on Facebook today had a post that said, what Yankee from before your time would you have loved to see play? And to anybody who didn't say Babe Ruth, I wanted to say, what are you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you were with them, CBS, Lean Years, Steinbrenner buys the team, and then... Of course, they, you know, they start winning. But the Bronx Zoo, what, Jeff, the, the years and Marty, the years for the Bronx Zoo, that was during the time that you were there, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. How, and you're doing PR for that team. I can't even imagine. Could you, well, could you let us in on a little of that, what it was like to do PR? From a business standpoint, this is important to note. PR used to be that you do daily press notes or an occasional press release. And that was the news of the day. And you distribute it to all the beat writers and columnists, and that was the news. In the early 70s, you might remember a little thing called Watergate. And it made Woodward and Bernstein heroes to all journalists, no matter what department they worked in. So sort of taking the cue from that, Murray Chass of the New York Times and Moss Klein of the Newark Star-Ledger began saying, in effect, we'll decide what the news is. It's not going to be your daily press notes. And so they began developing their own contacts, their own friendships, working the clubhouse, working the hotels. And it got away from us as a PR department, which is fine. I mean, looking back historically, maybe it's the way it should have always been. But that's when baseball changed and its coverage changed to what we know today. We stopped being the provider of the news, but rather the answer department and the can you arrange an interview with Greg Nettles department. It was just the evolution of the game. Someday it may swing back the other way. And that might sounds far-fetched that things could revert back. But fewer and fewer newspapers are sending reporters to every game now. Right. We even see home games for New York teams covered by Associated Press. If that rolls into place, you're going to see less and less of that backstage coverage. But for a long time, starting in the mid-70s, when the Bronx Zoo began to kick in, that was the way the game changed. You know, before the Bronx Zoo, well, let me just say, Len and I have spoken to several authors and give you success for their books. Uh, Mark Healy of Gotham Baseball, Brett Topel, When Shea Was Home, uh, the story of 75 Mets, Yankees, Jets, and Giants. When the Yankees moved into Jay Stadium for those two years when the stadium was being renovated, was they, what kind of challenges did the Yankees face being a tenant there? Well, let me talk about challenges. Our offices, which had been in Yankee Stadium, we're now across the street in Flushing Meadow Park, and yet you couldn't walk it, you had to drive. So people would ask me for things in the press box. I was the answer man, but the answer was back in my office. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I couldn't leave the game to go back to the office. So logistically, that was an issue. And we had no office in Shea. Those offices were fully occupied by our friends at the Mets. It felt like a two-year road trip. But it was a total of 162 home games over the two years. When Shea closed in 2008, a lot of local stations did retrospectives on the history of Shea Stadium. They always included the Beatles. 
but they never mentioned that we played two full seasons there, which I sort of felt badly about because at the very least, one day we blew out their their outfield fence with cannon fire. <laughs> you guys know about that one? Yeah. No. Oh, you oh, do t- that? T- tell that. Please. I, I want to hear that story. It was the 200th anniversary of the Army. We had a little field ceremony, and General Westmoreland was there. And the culmination of the field ceremony was they were going to fire a 21-gun salute from a cannon, which was about 50 feet from the outfield fence, like where uh, Tommy Agee made one of his World Series catches. Mm-hmm. So like on the fourth or fifth firing of the cannon, the fence just caught fire and fell down. So the game had to be delayed like 35, 40 minutes while they propped up the fence again. But even that, did everybody did it onto network news. You can go to YouTube and see that with John Chancellor as the anchorman. And even that didn't get us onto the history of Shea Stadium. <laughs> but we almost blew up their ballpark. Well, Brett Hotel told me personally that he couldn't have done that book without your help. You were very uh, instrumental for that, for that. It was nice that somebody cared to know yeah. about those two years we were there. Yeah. No, I, I remember them. I mean, it was a time when Bobby Mercer was, was traded for Bobby Bonds. That happened during those years, yeah. Yeah, after the first year... Mercer could not hit a home run in Shea Stadium, and he was kind of being paid $100,000 a year to show a little power. He finally hit one in September and then another one the next day, but that was it. He had two all year at home. Mr. Steinbrenner was not thrilled about paying him $100,000 for that kind of production, and even though he had been told, you're going to be a Yankee for life, we love you, you're the poster boy. He got traded to the Giants for Bobby Bonds, Barry's father, who with Dave Winfield was one of the two best athletes I ever saw. Just born with this gifted athletic body, could do anything. And I formed a nice friendship with Bobby Bonds. We went out to dinner a lot. He lost his sunglasses in spring training, and I picked up another pair at a drugstore. And I never saw anybody so appreciative of a small favor like that. It's a nice memory. But after just one year, he gets traded to the Angels for Ed Figueroa and Mickey Rivers. And that kind of won us the pennant in 76. So it was really Mercer for Rivers and Figueroa, which was a great trade. Absolutely. You were with the Yankees till what year? When did you leave the Yankees? I left the Yankees in 77. Okay. But I went over to WPIX right. and became executive producer of their telecasts on 11 Alive. Right. You won an Emmy, um, didn't you? What's that? You win, did you win an Emmy? I won an Emmy, yes. Oh, yeah. I'll go in the other room and get it for you. If you, like. <laughs> you know what? But, um, I never won an Emmy. We're, we're, we're trying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was a span like from... 68 when I started till 92 when I left picks that I was closely associated with the team and then remained so for years after either appearing on those Yankeeographies on Yes Network or writing stories for their magazine and writing books that had to do with the Yankees. Right. Yeah, you've you've written a number of Yankee books and Jeff I I I cut Jeff off and I'm sorry and but I mean we have Marty Appel on the show. Jeff. I know. This is Again, 
So, Marty, it's I always like say... having Ringo Starr on, you know, he was on with Colbert the other night. That would be a gift. OK, well, I always say, you know, we got to You got to act like you've been there and like professionals. But you know what? Down deep, we are fans. And the fact that you were on with us is is just. Yeah, it means so much. So I'm just going to say that. All right, Jeff, you know what? I cut you oh, off. Go ahead. Marty, he, he mentioned that he, you were uh, part of WPIX. Great broadcasting team. Phil Rizzuto, Frank Massa, Bill White. I mean, I'm a Mets fan, and I love watching those, you know, listening to those guys call the games. But you also brought over a, a favorite of mine, Tom Siva, to the WPIX booth. Can you tell us how that happened? Well, we lost Bill White. He got tabbed to be the National League president. Mm-hmm. So I had to replace him. I had a, I don't want to use the word audition because most of these guys, you kind of know what they can do. You're not going to hire some amateur. And Seaver, I had liked his work doing the World Series and postseason for NBC. Very brainy guy, well-spoken, of course. And I was friends with his agent, Matt Marola. So Matt and I discussed, do you think Tom would be interested in doing our games? So we hired Tom. He was there four or five years. I thought he was what I had expected, a very knowledgeable guy who could analyze the game as it went on. I never got the feeling that Yankee fans embraced him and really loved him like they had Rizzuto, White, and Messer. Mm -hmm. So people would tell me sometimes, I don't know, I'm not a big Tom Seaver fan. But I'm, I'm proud of that hire. I mean, who's Tom Seaver? Right. Yeah. It's like having Marty Appel on your show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I was, as you were talking about Tom Seaver, I wonder that because, you know, obviously Tom Seaver did not pay, play his whole career for the Mets, but he is a beloved, probably the number one beloved Met, you know, of all time. And that's interesting to have him. That was a, that was a gutsy move to have him broadcast Yankee games. That was definitely an interesting move and but he was definitely a great he knew the game he knew it he knew it really well but you know fans are they're funny they you know they they love their risotto they love they they want their guys to be whatever marty you're 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 familiar with uh, bill madden's latest book on tom siva correct i am yeah I never realized that Tom wanted to be traded to the Yankees for his final couple of years. He ended up going to the Red Sox, but uh, he wanted to be a Yankee. He wanted the, as long as he was young enough to still be a player, he wanted the full baseball experience so that he could tell his grandchildren someday about being a Yankee and having that full experience. He and I actually had this conversation. See, I did two books with Seaver. I neglected to mention that long before he became a Yankee announcer. So I knew him from working with him on those books. And when he got, well, he went to Cincinnati, but when he went to the White Sox from Cincinnati, I remember speaking to him on the phone to wish him well. He was just going to spring training. And I said, look, this is the American League. You're going to get to all these ballparks you've never been to. It's part of the complete experience. And he liked that. And I think that's what he had in mind about being a Yankee someday. Yeah. Right. One part of your career a lot of people don't know about is that you work with the Baseball Hall of Fame. While you didn't have a vote in guess who inducted, but you were responsible for what was written on those plaques. Well, I contributed. They okay. had their, 
they had their team that did it there. But Ed Stack, the president of the Hall of Fame, used to send me the suggested copy that they had come up with and asked me to look it over and see if I had any suggestions. And in many cases, I didn't. But one that comes to mind, which I treasure to this day, because when you have something on those plaques, it's forever. Bill Veck got elected to the Hall of Fame, famous to some people for signing Eddie Goodell, the midget, for, to bat for the St. Louis Browns, 1953, I think. And so I was, do you put that on the plaque? It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of what keeps you out of the Hall of Fame. You know? <laughs> so I put as the last line on the plaque, it's centered, it's all by itself, a champion of the little guy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's that's a little inner. You know what, Jeff? Next time we go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, we can, yes. when we see that, it'll have a different meaning. Yes. You know, Marty, obviously your your career, you know, for the most part has been baseball is 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 part of your whole career. Except for the Woody Allen movie. Right, which <laughs> which is probably the biggest highlight of it, you know, let's face it. But so what is it? What is it about the game of baseball that you love so much? Because it, there's obviously a love. It's something that made you as a 19-year-old kid write a letter to the Yankees. And what is it? It's not only the game on the field. It's all the extra stuff. It's the stories. It's the baseball cards. It's the books. It's the spring training magazines that come out. It's the music. It's, there's just a whole culture around it that I grew up with starting from when I was seven and went to Ebbets Field with my father. And I just love everything about the culture of the game, all that it brings forth. For a lot of baby boomers, we grew up with the baseball cards from Tops, where I later did PR for Tops. Right. And uh, even today, guys pass away, and the image of their card is the first thing that comes into mind. When Cy Berger was creating those baseball cards on his kitchen table in Brooklyn, it was like, uh, if only he knew all these years later how impactful that all was. And as my friends in baseball say, when we exchange anecdotes about times past, Peter Bravesi, especially out in La Jolla, he says, it's all about the stories. And in many cases, it is. You you come up with a story that goes with a team or a player or a moment. It's great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in 73, Ron Bloomberg became the first designated hitter in, in baseball. And you were the uh, PR director for the Yankees at that time. Was there a big demand to speak to Bloomberg after that happened? And also, two-part question, do you have any other unusual press conferences, conferences that you can tell us about? Close friend and still is today. There was not a historical fervor in 1973 as there might be today. The Hall of Fame, for which I regular contributor to their magazine, just asked me to write a story about the first DH. And boy, I knew all that stuff because I was there. I was in Fenway Park that day. But nobody paused in Fenway Park today as though we're witnessing history. And even the players didn't. Because we had done it all spring training, so it wasn't really new to us. But I was smart enough, I'd say, after the game, I went and got his bat. And 
sent it on to Cooperstown. And I like to say it's probably the only bat in Cooperstown commemorating a base on balls because he walked. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of an unused bat. <laughs> but now, these years later, people care about historic firsts, and that's good. I like that. I was sort of early in that thinking, perhaps. But I'm glad I saved the bat from that day. And he went on to get a lot of leverage out of it. Because if you take that out of his career, I'm not sure there's much left that would get him an old timer's day invitation. But now he's done two books. He does signings. He does his own podcast and good for him. I mean, hey, he's big on Twitter now too. <laughs> I see that huge number of followers. Yeah. So yeah. that guy that I used to go to dinner with in spring training and he, Always make the waitress leave a full pitcher of water on the table. That guy turned out to be history. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and then the second part of that question, any unusual press conferences that you had to, had to take care of? I don't know about unusual. I mean, I presided over the first free agent signings of Reggie Jackson and Don Gullett the first year that happened. And Reggie's was interesting because – he knew all the writers, even though he hadn't played in New York. He made a point of knowing who's Phil Pepe and who's Dick Young and who's Maury Allen and who's Steve Jacobson. He knew them all. So whereas I used to preside over the press conference and say, uh, you know, what Phil Pepe question, Reggie took charge. He was calling on who was asking the question. He was going to be his own PR guy. And that was fine, Reggie being Reggie. I never developed a really close friendship with him for whatever reason. But today, when I see the number retired and I see the plaque in Monument Park, I say to myself, he was there five years. One of them was a strike shortened season. I'm not sure it merited it. But had he not had that three home run game in the World mm. Series in 1977, I don't think it would have been the case. He certainly wouldn't have had the Reggie bar, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Marty, this is we, we, you spoke about what you love about the game, and 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 there's so much to love, and and you know we have a, a, to have a podcast called Baseball and Barbecue. You know we obviously love the game, we love the history. You know we talk current baseball, but we somehow keep going back to to the game and the history. But it seems to me, and it's Jeff as well. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic, because they, they obviously have tinkered with it, you know, whether it's putting a runner on second, you know, in extra innings or uh, reducing double headers to seven innings each. or So those things may be pandemic caused, but they're doing a lot of tinkering with the rules there in the minors this year. And do you think they're tinkering too much with the game? It just seems like there's so many things they're trying to change. My answer to that is that I don't really count in the discussion um, because baseball is a business and it's a business that knows that its average fan is in its, his 50s and they're not really picking up the younger generation. Similar problem to when I got into the game in 68. Mm -hmm. Right. So I sort of am inclined to accept the tinkering that they do in the hope that it gets young people more involved in the game as, as we were when we were that age. So I respect their effort to do that. I do PR 
still for a thing called the Seton Hall University Sports Poll. And we just polled people on how they feel about various rule changes. And most of them are like, yeah, 48% can live with it, 22% don't want it, we ask specific changes. But like 33% had no opinion or didn't know. And I thought that was sort of the story, that there's 33% there who could be persuaded. Baseball's such a conservative past. You would say if you'd asked questions about rule changes in the 1960s, would have been 89% saying, don't change a thing. Mm. But now it seems like people are sort of willing to accept it. I didn't like the runner on second in extra innings. Although maybe if you started it in the 12th or 13th inning. Right. I didn't mind the seven inning double headers. Not that there are a lot of double headers, but I was okay with it because let's face it, all of us agree the games are too long. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you could shave an hour off a double header, it's a big deal. Yeah, actually, uh, that's true. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, 100% will tell you the games are too long. Even the players would. And yet, on we go, just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but the thing is, I don't know. I, and, and obviously, you know, the great minds that are, are working on this, and obviously I'm not in that pool, but are those rule changes going to get the young people to the game? I, I don't know. It's almost like boxing, right, is not as popular, but mixed martial arts now, I don't even, MMA, right, yeah. is, is popular. And I, I don't know if they, they'd have to make boxing into mixed martial arts. And so I don't know if baseball, if these rule changes are going to get the young people to the game. I, maybe they, maybe it will. Maybe it will. I just don't know if that's enough or if that's that going to well, work. On the surface, you would say that fi- making a relief pitcher face three batters, how is that going to appeal to young people? But if it shaves five or ten yeah. minutes off the game, in a subtle way, that's making the game more quicker, making it quicker and more appealing so quicker quicker is really i mean that's the thing though it's almost like everything that's being done is to speed up the game so what they're basically saying is that's the issue and and i i don't know if that's just the is is the speed of the game and the fact that there's no time clock or is football such a popular game because because there's a time clock i I don't know that There's speeding up the game. There's more baseball than there is in football, game by game. Right. Stop Right. Yeah. So I just wonder. But I, anyway, Jeff, I'm sorry. I just, you know, I don't want to see this game die out. I love this game. We love this game. Right. And I, just, uh, I, I want to I ask Marty a couple more questions on, on his business. He has a, I, I was looking at your website, appellpr.com, and, and you have a client list there. And my gosh, what, a, what an impressive list. One of the clients that caught my eye is the Israeli Baseball League. And I think they only lasted one season where Ron Bloomberg and, and Art Champsy were managers and Clinton Ken Olsman. Now they're, now they're a contender in the World Baseball Classic. Did you, uh, do you have any insights on one of the, what it's, their chances are? Well, the league was a professional league. The players got paid. 
And it didn't last. There wasn't a good business plan behind it. I was there with Dan Duquette. He was uh, in charge of player procurement and filling up the rosters. And there was what they needed to do was uh, spend a whole year on the ground there, running clinics, getting people sort of interested in the sport. They kind of went into it too quickly. They charged admission for tickets, but there was like nobody went to the games. For me, I never thought I'd be in Israel, so that was a nice experience to have done that. Mm. But the league rushed itself too much. It played Shamsky. Uh, Bloomberg was the champion manager beating Shamsky in the championship game. And Bloomberg never even learned the names of his players. (laughs) His first baseman, Eric Hulse, was sort of the manager because he learned the names of the players and he'd had some experience at a higher level. But Bloomberg called everybody big guy. And uh, that was... Yeah, that's great. It's like, who's on first? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) But now they're doing pretty good in the uh, World Baseball because they had a very good showing last time. So the league was kind of stepping stone towards this. And it got some people in Israel interested after the league folded in developing some fields and a youth program. So Israel has done well in the World Baseball Classic and maybe the Olympics still to come, but they did well last time around. But it's mostly players with Jewish roots, American players who've played the games here, uh, like Kevin Euclid or guys like that. So Israel has not really developed its own bunch of talented players. I think there's one major leaguer now whose name I don't remember who actually grew up in Israel, Mm -hmm. went went to college here and played college ball here. Right. You guys have not asked me about my background. You Uh, have to do that. Which of you is going to ask? I'll ask. (laughs) What about your background? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you could create these artificial backgrounds for Zoom conversations. This one is Miller is Huggins Stengel Field in St. Petersburg, which is very recognizable by the trees over the outfield fence. And the Yankees started spring training there in 1925. And Miller Huggins, their manager of those Murderers Rose teams, took bought a home in St. Petersburg and after the season lived down here. So the fact that Ruth and Gehrig and all of those guys trained on this field and it remained in use through 1962 with the Yankees, Mandel and Maris and all those guys. And then when the Yankees moved to Fort Lauderdale, the Mets took over here. And this was a Mets spring training site. They would work out here. They'd play their games at Al Lang Field a few miles away. But Nobody recognizes this. Don't worry about it. But there's so much history here. And I was at a fantasy camp for the Yankees in Tampa. And I said, I'm not far from St. Petersburg. Let me go visit that field. And I was delighted to see that it looked just as it did on those old black and white newsreels of Ruth and Gehrig in spring training. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about your, your time uh, with, with Yogi Berra. I'm sure you know him very well. He you know, I read. We just we just read the book by John Pessa, Yogi, uh, man, man Behind the Mask. What what a wonderful book! And he was a you know just he might be the greatest Yankee with with ten rings. 
you never were in a room with Yogi Berra when you didn't feel great about life and you didn't leave with a smile on your face. He had that effect on people. He was such a great baseball player. In the 50s and 60s, the catchers on the other teams in the American League, Lou Berberet, Clint Courtney, Sherm Lawler, Gus Triandos, they were all like the regulars for the Orioles and the White Sox and Senators and you name it. They all started in the Yankee farm system and they couldn't unseat Yogi, so they all got traded away. So you start each season with Yogi catching and the other teams all having cast-offs and you know, well, this, the deck is stacked. <laughs> we're all, this is going to be a pennant-winning season for the Yankees and it always was, largely because of his presence. He was not a well-spoken guy, like he could run a clubhouse with pep talks. But he was a successful manager, won pennants in both the American and the National Leagues. He has more rings than you could believe if you count up all the rings as a player, as a coach, as a manager, for being an all-star, for being in the Hall of Fame. It's like 30 rings. Wow. And now he's got a postage stamp coming in June. Good for Yogi. I was talking to his son Larry yesterday about the press conference coming up for the postage stamp, and they were trying to create some words to go with the Postmaster General's introduction, so he gave me a call on that. I'll share with you this. My book on Yankee history is called Pinstripe Empire, which was nicely received when it came out in 2012 as sort of the definitive Yankee history. And the good news is that it's being updated oh, for good. the ebook e version, and it'll go through the 2020 season. The book ends, I needed you know, some conclusion for 2020, and I chose to end with Whitey Ford's passing. So I talk about how Whitey had Alzheimer's his last four or five years, and because of that, he was unable to attend Yogi's funeral in 2015. And then I said, and so when Whitey's funeral came, Yogi wasn't there because Yogi said, you got to go to people's funerals or they won't go to yours. Exactly. <laughs> so once again, Yogi was right one more time. Right. <laughs> you know, I met, I met Whitey Ford when I was a kid at, I guess he helped design a golf course in the Poconos at a, at a resort the nicest guy he had on his a Hall of Fame ring and a World Series ring. And he let my dad and I try these rings on. At the time, I was a kid and I knew who he was. You know, I knew he was Whitey Ford. Didn't know the magnitude of the man. And, you know, trying on the rings was incredible. But, you know, you look back now and it, he just was so nice. And it was very sad with his, you know, with his recent passing. It was just yeah, sure was. He made it to ninety. Good for him. Yeah, what a what a guy. And go ahead, Jeff. I, I wanted to just mention about about Yogi because he was at the end of, of Joe DiMaggio's career and at the beginning of, of Mickey Mantle's career. But in between, I mean, he spanned. He, he was like the rock of that team in the fifties. I mean, he was just so good. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, and remarkably. He would catch, you know, the season was 154 games then. He'd catch 150 games. And they would play like 18 doubleheaders, and he'd catch both ends of the doubleheader, 
even after the pennant had been clinched. They clinched a pennant September 20th, and you look up like September 26th, Yogi's catching both ends of a doubleheader against the Washington Senators. My God. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? And, and in 1960, he, he, he was out on the field in left field when Bill Mazurowski had said home run, and another great Yankee became catcher, Elson Howard. Could you yeah. tell us about Elston, Ellie? What a succession of catching greats they've had, going back to Bill Dickey and then Yogi and then Ellie, Thurman Munson, on to Jorge Posada, and we'll see what happens with Gary Sanchez, right? Yes. <laughs> right. And you wrote a you wrote a book. Uh, you wrote you wrote a couple of books that are, I guess, children's books on Thurman, right? Casey Stengel and on Thurman Munson, right? Are they for Penguin Books? Are the young reader books? I or? did young readers on uh, DiMaggio mm-hmm. and Elston Howard. I did two Munson books, one with him, obviously when he was still with us. Mm-hmm. So it was an autobiography that came out in 1978. And then after he died in 79, they put out a memorial edition. Mm-hmm. And then in 2009, my editor at Doubleday said, 30th anniversary coming up, would you be interested in writing a full-blown biography? Nobody has done that yet, and there's so much to the aftermath of the crash. So I did that, and really half the book is the events of that day, the aftermath, his legacy, and he still has a tremendous following. Oh, yeah. Thurman Munson following. You go to any game at normal times at Yankee Stadium, You'll see 40 or 50 people in Munson t-shirts. So um, that's wonderful that his legacy carries on. And it was an honor to do both books, the one with him and the one on my own. Marty, when Thurman Munson was, when, when he died, the plane crash, of course, I was, it was in the summer um, and I was uh, at a camp up in the Catskills and when we received the news, they actually, we had flag raising every morning and they read the news that it had happened uh, the day before. It was amazing how people just were, the shock, it was shock. And I can't even imagine what it was like to have been here. And is that the most shocking thing that happened to you or happened to the Yankees while you were around at oh, yeah. back then? You know, nobody's thinks a 31-year-old guy at the peak of his game is going to be dead tonight. Mm -hmm. Awful event. And it took, for baseball fans in any way, it kind of took its place as to where was I when I heard the news. Mm -hmm. As my parents' generation remembered FDR's death, well, Pearl Harbor, Mm -hmm. FDR's passing. To me, JFK's assassination is on that list. And for many, Thurman Munson's uh, plane crash is on that list. Yeah. What a tragedy. You know, Marty, uh, when I was a kid, my grandfather took me to these dinners, uh, B'nai B'rith Award dinners, and they had all these athletes out there. And one of the one of the people who were there was Roy White. And I was looking through the, the program, and I saw I had Roy White's uh, autograph, and he must be one of the most underrated Yankees there are. I mean, he played, he was a great, great New York Yankee. He's probably the best left fielder in their history. So I ask you guys, because you're fans, why isn't he more respected and beloved in, you know, in retirement? 
That's, so a, that's a great question. I don't know. We, we did have, speak to a, a, a person named Paulie G who owns a bunch of uh, pizzerias, and he, he loves Roy Wright. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I agree with you. He is, I don't know why he's even more loved. He was, you know, soft-spoken spoken and not controversial at all. There are no stains on his personal record or his personal life. He just went out there and played the game right and did it every day, year after year after year. And there isn't even a plaque in Monument Park for him. Mm. I don't get it. Yeah. Well, you know what? Here's another one that I don't get. As long as we're doing, I don't get. I love Willie Randolph. Loved him as a Yankee. Got a plaque. But understood. <laughs> but loved, loved him when he managed the Mets. Took him forever to get the managerial job. And I do not understand why Willie Randolph has never managed again. Any, any thoughts on that? I, I mean, I'd say. I think, yeah, I do have a thought on it, and I would love to see it, and he's a good friend, and we've spoken about it on the phone a lot. But he seems to have come along at a time when the job was passing over to propeller heads, one of my friends calls them, <laughs> to guys who came to rely on those loose-leaf printouts of, you know, situational things and right. analytics. And Roy was not dumb when it came to that. I, I mean, Willie was not dumb when it came to that stuff. When he managed the Mets, he had all the analytics and mm-hmm. he operated with it. But somehow today's general managers and owners Think of the job as not going to anybody famous, but to somebody who's just going to kind of run the lineup that the front office suggests is our best chance of winning today. And Willie was not perceived as that. He was perceived as being old school, having grown up under Billy Martin. So I think that's the only thing you could say. I want him on this podcast so bad. (laughs) I am not afraid to say it. I'm not afraid to beg we're, we're going to reach out to Willie. We'll, we'll try to reach out to Willie. So you, you have no idea, Marty, uh, how badly, I, because I, I respect him so much, and I will tell him, you got a bum deal. He doesn't need me to tell him that. He knows it, but whatever. He was fantastic. Marty, we don't want to keep you much longer, but we can talk to you all night. I mean, your, your career is fantastic. Yeah. I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm a member of Sabre, as are you. And I know this year they didn't have the Sabre Day. They did it uh, virtually. And I saw your interview with Bob Costas. I just want to tell you that was just a wonderful talk back in January. It was such a fun interview. And I just it was just such great. I just want to let you know that. Thank you. It was I thought afterwards it was like winning the lottery. And the first prize was talk baseball with Bob Costas for 45 minutes. Couldn't go wrong. Couldn't <laughs> <laughs> go wrong. Marty, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, it's just been a, been a pleasure, and we really—I mean, we can talk to you all night, but you know, we respect your time. Right. And, and thank you for coming on with us. We really appreciate it. You know, we do. My pleasure, guys. Good questions, fun interview. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Marty. And you know what, Marty? You could also—I I know we can never afford you, but I know that if you did PR for this podcast, <laughs> we, might, we might get a few more listeners. I—I I, I predict it. That would happen. <laughs> Keep it under advisement. <laughs> thank you. And we want to thank Marty Appel for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. He was just a, a great guy to speak to. I mean, if you want to talk history, baseball history, Yankee history, Marty Appel is the guy to go to. I mean, he is involved in all aspects of the game, and I just 
I thoroughly enjoyed that interview. Jeff, when you get somebody on like Marty Appel, and we love baseball history, it's almost like when you're reading a book and you can't put it down, you really don't want to end the interview. I mean, we want to be respectful of his time, so we do, but he's one of the people, as they say, that we, we barely scratch the surface. You, you, you know how many stories he must have, how I just, baseball and Yankee history and just, I mean, really just, he, he's a treasure. He Absolutely. really is. And Len, yeah. be, before I forget, I want to thank our friends, Gary Mack and Rich Baxter. They had us on the Baseball Talk radio show last week. Had a good time. Had a fun time talking baseball with those guys. And yes. really, uh, thank you, Rich. Thank you, Gary, for having us on. It was a great time, great show. And if you check it, check it out. It's the Baseball Talk radio show. Yeah, they, are, they have a great show. And also, Jeff, we always, every time we, we end this show, I always remember something that I wanted to, to say or to plug or whatever. So before I forget, we have some, uh, some people that I, that I think you want to check into. And one is, of course, BaseballBBQ.com for their great grilling tools and accessories. Uh, if you didn't buy these uh, tools for your loved ones for Father's Day, just get them as a, as a just, you know, I was thinking of you gift, BaseballBBQ.com. And of course, there's Fifth and Cherry for their wonderful cutting boards. And of course, as always, the Pandemic Book Club, of which we have authors on. Go to the Pandemic Book Club and uh, help these authors. And also, you can buy some of their, their items as well. And I want everybody to let how they get in touch with us. You can give us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballmbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook, Baseball and BBQ, a Twitter, at Baseball and BBQ, YouTube, Baseball and BBQ, Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And please take the time to rate and review us. We'd really appreciate it. And now we are joined by Bree Blackford of Elder's Kitchen. Just when you thought there were no other sauces to try, you find out there's one more sauce. You missed it. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't pick this sauce up, you're going to regret it. Because we are extremely lucky to have on with us none other than Bree Blackford. Bree is an owner of Elder's Kitchen. They make incredible sauces, barbecue sauces. As a matter of fact, my personal favorite, black pepper, we're going to talk about. But Bree, welcome to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Bree. Thank you guys so much for having me today. Bree, you told us this is your first podcast. It is. <laughs> you can now drop the mic and... <laughs> And that's it. You, you don't need to go on any others. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Bree, tell us you, you're entering, you're, you're in a market. We know the competition is tough. You were generous enough to send us a few of the sauces. We tried them. I love them. I told you, black pepper is my favorite. But yep. how do you go into the sauce market? So, you know, it started out with just a love of cooking and really started with Elda herself. So Elda, Elda's kitchen is named after my Italian grandmother. 
And yeah, very nice. (laughs) So Elvis is named after her and it's something that my dad and I created. Now he started it back when I was in middle school. So that's when he started Elda's Kitchen. So it's just something that I was kind of born into. Um, (laughs) We have, it just started with a love of cooking and being in the kitchen and wanting to create delicious meals with a lot of flavor for family and friends, because really Elda opened her door to anyone. That's, that's terrific. And I agree with Len. The, the black pepper sauce was just really, really good. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, guys. So you went, your grandmother loved to cook, obviously. She got you into these sauces, and now you built into a, a great business. And I love that it's uh, American-made and that you actually have I'm, – I'm reading on your website here that you actually bottled it in, in Oneonta, New York, and you helped grow a business there because there were people were leaving, and you actually ha- had people – stay there because, and you create a job, which I think was fa- fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so it started with a bottling plant in upstate New York and Oneonta called Brooks Bottling. So they actually have Brooks Barbecue too. So we went in there wanting to just create these great sauces and we were able to help them grow from a team of 10. Now I believe that they're at 40 or 50 people on the production line. That's fabulous. And creating jobs. That's just terrific. Bree, I, I mentioned that it is tough. The sauce category is tough. My favorite aisle in the grocery store is the barbecue aisle <laughs> and with all the sauces. And depending on the region of your country, you know, you're not even going to see the same sauces in one place that we see here. How does one go from making sauces in your kitchen and they're delicious, but where, you know, and probably people said, oh, you should sell this. You should bottle this and sell this. Right. And then you are now a business. Take us through it. So, you know, like everything, you just have to pursue your dreams. And this was a dream. It's a passion, really. Um, You know, just a love of cooking that has always been instilled in us. So, It was taking those to Brooks Bottling and asking them to help us create Elda's Kitchen. Now, it does help a little bit that my dad was a butcher for many years. He had built those relationships among butchers in different areas, different retailers, and they were kind enough to help Elda's Kitchen, you know, just get off the ground and up and running. But now when you go from making it in your kitchen where, you know, you can stick it in the fridge and it doesn't have to last that long, but now you are having it bottled. Some of the ingredients might be different than you used at home or how how did that work out? So it's really great because we do have a chef that we bounce ideas off of, like our peach habanero was something that I just really enjoy that sweet and heat. So we sent it to him. I'll make, I'll come up with sauces in my kitchen. I love experimenting. I don't know that my family loves my experiments so much, but (laughs) I do. (laughs) So we just send it to him. He takes it and he will make it so that it is shelf stable. Now our products are about 18 months, completely sealed, shelf stable. And once you open them, it's about 30 days, but With our bottles, it's 
a one and you're done use really for myself we're a family of five one bottle's kind of pushing it if we're going to be cooking you know chicken breasts or thighs or steaks that we may need a little bit more but it is that things do change a little bit but our chef and his creative mind he has just helped keep those flavors really solid and very much on point with with what we have sent him or better <laughs> what was your italian grandmother like you said elders favorite sauce to make and then how did it grow to, to what you have by well, almost a dozen sauces now Elda being Italian, I don't know about you guys, but I think Italian, I think spaghetti sauce, maybe that's just instilled in me that when you ask what sauce stood out, it would be her homemade spaghetti sauce because it was my absolute favorite. But in terms of marinade, it would have to be the garlic and herb because I can still smell that smell, remember her barbecuing chicken, and it was a garlic and herb. Well, you know, as you as you're talking about favorite sauces, I wanted to ask you which of your favorite sauces, which of your sauces of the dozen is your favorite. But that was stupid because it's like asking which is your favorite child. So forget forget that, Jeff. You don't need to edit that question because that because that showed how stupid I am. (laughs) No, but you know what? It's so funny. It's because if you ask me what my favorite is, it's probably the one I'm cooking with or the one that I'm about to cook with. Right. That's, the sauces are not only for the barbecue. I mean, you have the steakhouse, the black pepper, and the uh, Jamaican jerk. Those definitely go well on the barbecue. But you also have some other sauces. What are some of the other sauces? Because honestly, I can't remember all of them. <laughs> There's a lot of sauces. And, you know, so what I decided to do, because I just recently started within the past just over a year, started going live on Facebook and taking every single one of our sauces that yes, it goes on the grill perfectly on whatever you want to put it on, but I take it and I make something different with it. So I'd have to say the most off the wall. Well, okay. One of the most off the wall things I've done is a peach habanero cheesecake. Wow. That yeah, sounds delicious. I, yeah. I've I made did see, brownies. <laughs> oh, <nice>. <laughs> <laughs> I did see you pour the peach habanero over a block of cream cheese yes. and then you and then you crumbled bacon on top of that. And that looked really good. <laughs> Everything's good with bacon, but that no that <laughs> I'd like to ask you about the your packaging uh, actually because I, I love it. It looks like a, 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 a 50s type of theme it looks like really cool like in the diner like your background right now and uh, you know it just it really catches the eye did you come up with this or is this part of your, your dad's thinking thank you so much well my dad and i both happen to be huge fans of the 50s i am trying to bring that back that 1950s kitchen culture so it was really just us like throwing ideas off of each other and like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And that's how we came up with it. So, you know, I really, I've said it before, I don't feel like I'm in the right decade. I feel like I should have been (laughs) in the 50s and it would would have been a great fit for me. (laughs) I mean, the the packaging, it just pops, you know, it grabs your eye. It just looks really terrific. I mean, I I really, looking at this, is very artsy. Thank you so much. We're talking with Bree Blackford of Elda's Kitchen. And 
I, I want to tell you the, the the sauces. This is for the listeners. The sauces are stupendous. They really are really good. And I've had a lot of sauces, so and I definitely recommend them. And I will tell you, of the three I had, my personal favorite was black pepper. I am going to say it, but the second and third were very close. So. It, black pepper just won by a little bit. I, you know. <laughs> Let me just say this: it's not just uh, it's, so it can be used as a dipping sauce as well, mm-hmm. right? It, it's ter- terrific. I mean, if you bet your website, I mean, it, you have your story there. You have I love the recipes you have on there. It looks Thank terrific, you. and also you have a YouTube channel where you actually show how to make some stuff. I saw some pizza today being made. That was a uh, <laughs> like, like, pretty much with chicken and cilantro on it. That looks terrific with the spiky sauce. So. <laughs> So uh, how often do you do that? And, and you mentioned you did it on Facebook also. Yes. I go live every Wednesday on both Facebook and Instagram. And as soon as I can build up enough followers on the YouTube, then I can go live on YouTube as well at the same time. So I go live and it just started as just this idea of, you know, like everything starts. Hey, these sauces that we make are great on their own, but you know what? Let's take them and just step them up a notch and make different things. It just really started with uh, just wanting to experiment. And like I said, I will experiment in the kitchen nonstop. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Brie, where can, where can our listeners buy your sauces? So the best place in my opinion, to buy the sauces would be either on amazon.com or on our website, eldestkitchen.com. The reason I say that is because I love getting goodies at my front door. If you are looking for retail bottles on the East Coast, Harris Teeter is a wonderful option. Uh, We're also into Chico's. We're in Whole Foods behind the meat counter, not the retail bottles out here in California where I am. You can find the retail bottles at Lazy Acres in Southern California. So and we have a lot of other little retailers that use us behind their meat counters like New Seasons and New Leaf as well. I was going to say, when we have authors on, they always volunteer to to sign their books when you buy it from their site. Will you sign these bottles of sauces? <laughs> you know what? I can sign bottles of sauces if people are interested. <laughs> so, so, Brie, uh, you, your products look terrific. Like I, I, like I said, you sell them in variety packs that can be sold individually as well, I assume. You have eight ounces and you have three-pack eight ounces and six-pack eight ounces, and then you have the 32-ounce bottles, and then you have a four-pack of 32-ounce bottles. So there's a lot of variety. Look at the website. It's just a lot of good stuff there. The website is elderskitchen.com, but you mentioned uh, Facebook and YouTube, so you want to give us those addresses where people can reach you? Sure. Elders Kitchen on Facebook is elderfacebook.com backslash elderskitchen. And I believe that's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's <laughs> they wrong. Can, they can so search it. <laughs> you can search for Elda's Kitchen. Same thing with Instagram and YouTube as well. Just search for Elda's Kitchen. Before we let you go, I just one thing I wanted to say was the sizes, the uh, eight ounce sizes is very smart because I know all the time, all I hear is you're using another sauce. You didn't finish the one we opened. And I end up with tons of bottles of sauce in the fridge and they're all kind of half used or whatever and you see so you open another one yours 
was, you're right, very smart sized. You use it, maybe it depends, you know, how much you're making, get two uses out of it, but it definitely helps with the refrigerator space. Thank you so much. Yeah, we strive for that one and you're done. And like you said, it's all of these bottles that, you know, are half full in the fridge and we like that it's one and you're done. Now, can I tell you that my fridge is not stocked with Eldas? No. (laughs) 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 I will just open them up and just use very little if I have an idea. But for the most part, like when I'm doing a big meal for the family and not just having fun, (laughs) it's a one and you're done. (laughs) You know, I I can't buy any other sauces. (laughs) <laughs> I just thought of that. Your kitchen can only have, I mean, can you imagine if somebody opened your fridge and there was a different company sauce? They'd be, what are you doing? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. We have like a whole shelf that is, you know, dedicated to Elda's kitchen. <laughs> yes. Bria, I, I see on your website that you also offer a unique virtual experience and online cooking classes. Could you tell Thank us, you. tell our listeners what's that about and how can they go about doing that? So this started at the beginning of COVID. I just wanted to be able to connect with people. I am such a people person. I love to be in the kitchen cooking with people. So I thought, hey, let's take our eldest kitchen cooking and grilling sauces and let's have a little fun and, you know, cook together through Zoom. So actually, um, I've done quite a few. A lot of them have had kids in it. So what happens is you reach out to me or I will post an event and I'll send you the marinade that we use plus a shopping list. And we cook together through zoom and it's not like you have to go at my pace. I will stop. I will slow down, answer questions. It's a very personal experience. Wow. That's terrific. Thank you. We thank you very much. We wish you tons of success with your sauces and we're glad you we were your first podcast. Thank you guys. Hopefully you enjoyed the experience. I did very much. Thank you both so much for having me. It was a fun experience. Check out Elder's Kitchen at elderskitchen.com. Check out the YouTube page and check out the Facebook page. And look out for Bri uh, on those live live streaming when, when she does when she goes live. And watch out as she dominates the <laughs> barbecue sauce world. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you very much, Bree. Elda's Kitchen. Look for her online. Look for her in the stores. The sauces are, they're really good. Jeff, you made burgers at, using one of the sauces. I did. How'd you like it? They were excellent. They're I made very, it for you. Thank you. And I appreciate it. <laughs> no, and how simple was it? Very simple. It was chopped meat, right? And, and the sauce mixed together. And they were moist. They were delicious. So if anybody ever has an issue with, you know, they don't have their burgers, don't have enough taste or they're dried out. These were, these were perfect. And it's just using her one sauce and, and chopped meat. And, and it was excellent. So again, thank you, Brie. And again, thank you, Marty Appel. And Jeff, once again, we get to the end of the episode. Sad, you know, sadly, we have to go. But before we do, we're going to be let out with our friends, the musician, Dave Dresser, the poet, Shel Krakowski, and their wonderful song, Baseball Always Brings You Home. Jeff, I'll see you in episode 98. Okay, see you next time. <laughs>